0: We'll find him momentarily, as we continue in the reading of Matthew's Gospel, that he is now in the area just west of the Jordan River, about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. The place where he's at is very near the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is at an elevation of around 1,300 feet below sea level. It is the, in fact, lowest ground that you will find on planet Earth, above water, but it is below sea level. Jerusalem, on the other hand, is about 2,500 or so feet above sea level, situated on a series of mountains that they call Mount Zion, the Mount of Olives. It consists of several mountain peaks but the city of Jerusalem was built there. So Jesus is now about, well, around 3,500 or so feet away from, in terms of height, the city of Jerusalem, but about 15 miles. It's an uphill climb from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's on a mission. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem as a flint. In other words, he was resolved to get to Jerusalem at the appointed time and in the appointed way. And we'll talk about some of those things as we move forward. Reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20 then, beginning with verse 29. Now as they went out of Jericho... A great multitude followed him, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Two blind men. He's coming out of the city of Jericho. There's a large multitude. It tells us a great multitude of people were following him. Now, this is just before the Passover in Jerusalem. And if you know anything about your Old Testament scriptures, and hopefully you'll know a little bit today, if not as much as you perhaps want to know, but I'm going to be sharing some things with regard to what the Old Testament does speak on these matters. But in the Old Testament scriptures... Passover was one of three feasts that male adult Jews were required to make an effort to get to the temple in Jerusalem every year that those feasts, every time those feasts were observed. So the Feast of Passover, one of those three feasts, the other two were Passover and Tabernacles, but Passover in the spring of the year was a huge feast day for the people of Israel. It was a day that they were celebrating their freedom. They had been slaves in Egypt and it was the Passover that became a symbol of their having been set free from the bondage of slavery. Moses had led them out of Egypt after having seen all the plagues that the Lord brought against The Egyptian Pharaoh and against the Egyptian gods, by the way. Finally, at the tenth plague, Pharaoh said, Go. And they did. They took great spoil with them and they left Egypt by the hand of God. Miraculous things had taken place. That night, before they left the land of Egypt, was a special night. And that night, they were to take a lamb. And they were to slaughter that lamb and apply the blood of that lamb upon the top of the door, the sides of the door, and in the step where they walk over, there's a kind of a hollowed out area which was intended to keep flood water from doing any damage inside, but the blood would be drained into that hollowed out area at their feet. And if you think about it, You see a picture there. I hope you do. Jesus wore a crown of thorns on his head. They had plucked his beard out. He was bleeding profusely from his wounds in his head and face. He was bleeding profusely from his wounds as they put the nails through his hands on each side of the cross. And at his feet, another nail was put through the feet to hold him on that cross. So you have this picture in the Old Testament of the sacrificial Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, with His blood on all four points in the Old Testament, just as it would appear if you were to look at the cross as Jesus hung from it on that day. So the Old Testament really is a beautifully illustrated picture of that which was to be fulfilled by the one who was to be the Lamb of God. Remember John the Baptist had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the forerunner of the Christ. He had spoken to the people. And many of them believed what John had to say, but some did not. Those who did not were blinded by things of their own making. They had physical eyesight but they did not have insight. These two men that we just read about, both blind, they could not see, but they had insight even though they did not have eyesight. The insight that they had was the recognition that this one whose name is Jesus coming toward them is indeed the Son of David, the Messiah, the one they recognize as that promised Man of God who would come as a Lamb of God. I submit to you that in this reading today we're going to see a few different things. The first thing that I want you to recognize with me is that the multitudes expected a king. They expected a king. One who would free them from the bondage that they were under the oppressive rule of the Romans. They longed for that freedom that they once had. It was a terrible time of oppression. And so you have to realize that it was right for them to expect that the king would come to free them from that which they were experiencing. After all, did not God do that with Moses? And Moses had said, there is coming a day when another prophet would come, like me, who will set you free. And that's what they were expecting. They were expecting a king. These men, both blind, were part of those who were expecting a king. But they couldn't see. And they wanted desperately to see this one. And so they cried out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Have mercy on us, O Son of David. They kept on saying that, and the multitude, overhearing them, decided, well, hey, you guys got to stop that nonsense. Be quiet. They didn't appreciate the fact that these two blind men were trying to take Jesus away from His purpose that He had already declared, I'm going to Jerusalem. Take note. Verse 32 says, So Jesus stood still and called them. And He said, What do you want Me to do to you? That almost is kind of a redundant question. He knew what they wanted, but He wants them to say what they need. And so it is with everyone who is blind. In a certain sense, those who do not know the salvation that is provided by jesus christ are indeed blind they're blinded to the truth blinded by the customs of their day blinded by the world philosophies of their time blinded by the cultural influences they're spiritually blind they cannot see because either they have been blinded by others or they have purposely shut their eyes to the truth but they're blind Jesus had said about the Pharisees that they were blind. They were the spiritual leaders in Israel. What did he mean they were blind? They were blind because they did not believe the Word of God as they should have understood the Word of God, and they did not accept what he had to share about the Word of God, which was truth. They believed the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. They were blind And Jesus said the blind, the Pharisees and scribes, are leaders of the blind, and they both will fall into the ditch. Blindness is a spiritual problem. But there is a solution. The solution is Jesus Christ. He opens the eyes of the blind. He gives light where there was only darkness. He alone can do such things because He is the Son of God and He has been, for that purpose, brought before all mankind so that all mankind can make a choice. Believe in Him and you will see. Reject Him and you will be blind still. But they were expecting a king. Now, he's going to go into Jerusalem... But not as they think it. He's coming for a different reason. Their expectation, they expected a king, but they rejected the Savior. They expected the king, he was coming as Savior, and they rejected him. Later on, we're going to be seeing the fact that they are, in a sense, inspecting the Lamb. The lamb will be inspected, just as it was in the Old Testament. That was a requirement for all the Jews when they took that lamb and slaughtered it on the 14th day of Nisan in April, their month, Nisan, or Abid, depending on which translation or which version of their calendar you consider. But in any case, that specific day was a day that the lamb would be slaughtered. But four days prior to that, On the 10th of that month, they had to take a lamb from their flock. And that lamb couldn't be just any lamb. It had to be a yearling. It couldn't be any more than a year old. It had to be male. And it had to have no blemish, no spot, no impurity, no imperfection. The lamb couldn't be one that had a sore leg and was limping. The lamb couldn't have spots all over its body. It had to be a lamb or a goat that was without any blemish. No tumors, no problems physically that would be evident to any of them. They would take that lamb from their own flock and they would bring that lamb into their own house for four days. And during that four days' time, they would continue to inspect that lamb. That's important because, as I said, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day are going to spend those days before the crucifixion after Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and they will be inspecting the lamb. They will be trying to find a blemish, trying to find an imperfection, trying to point that to the fact they thought that Jesus was a criminal and was worthy of death. That was their goal. They didn't want the lamb to be without spot, without blemish. They wanted to find an imperfection, but they could not. So here we have again this chronological series of events. First, they were expecting the king as he's approaching Jerusalem. We're going to see that the king will arrive. But they will reject the Savior. That's the reason he came. And in their rejection, they're going to inspect the lamb, which is the lamb of God, to prove that he is not worthy of being their king. Expected, rejected, inspected. And I submit today, although we're not going to get to this any time in the near future as far as I know, unless the Lord does indeed come as the Lion of Judah. Because we're expecting Him, the Lamb of God, to come as the King of God and a Lion of Judah that is The one who would be accepted by his people eventually. So we have these four things. Remember them. Expected the king. They rejected the Savior. They inspected the lamb. But he is coming again. And they will accept the lion of Judah that is coming to reign on the earth. That will happen. That's what they were expecting in that day, but it's not yet fulfilled The reason? Because the church is here. And as long as the church is here, He will not reign in Jerusalem. But He will eventually do that. Because that's what the Word of God declares. All of those things in the Old Testament pointing to these wonderful truths that we find in fulfillment here in Matthew's Gospel and will be fulfilled in our day, they're all for that one purpose. To establish the Lord, Jesus. I've got three caricatures of Jesus in my office. One picture that I have is a picture of a lion with a lamb laying at its side, content. The lion's eyes are closed and looking like he's very satisfied, not because he's got lunch next to him, but because he is welcoming the lamb. They are together in that picture. They represent Jesus as both the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. Next to that, I have an artist's drawing of a man with crowns of thorns on his brow looking up with a facial expression that just draws you near to that picture and say, Jesus, You're so good to me for what You have done. So I have those three beautiful pictures. The Son of Man, the Lion of Judah, the sacrificial Lamb of God. I love that. It's a constant reminder of who I belong to. I belong to Him. These men... Blind, they had insight. They knew something that the, most of the crowd that were there did not know. And they're crying out for mercy because of what they did know. They want to have this one who is a son of man, who is the son of David, the promised Messiah, who, according to Isaiah, would open the eyes of the blind. He's the one they needed. They recognize that fact. And oh, how I long for the day to see a multitude of people coming to that same conclusion in these last days. I believe that's still possible because the fullness of Gentiles is not yet come in. According to the Word of God, it must be so before He brings to fulfillment all of what He had said. So there's still work to be done. The church is still here and there's still time for them to open their eyes. Oh, let it be so, Lord God, that people would open their eyes so they can see Open their ears so that they can hear. Soften their hearts, O Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and draw them to yourself in the name of Jesus. These two men, they're blind. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, he says there are two men that are blind. In the other Gospels that record this, Matthew's one of them, the other two are Mark and Luke, they record the same event but only talk about one individual. And I don't see that as a contradiction, as unbelieving people oftentimes will say. The truth of the matter is, Matthew was there, and he knew that there were two blind men. The other writers were not present, but they got the story from one of the two. And Mark names that one. His name is Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Bartimaeus. He's a blind man, but he's one of two, according to Matthew, that come and cry out to Jesus. And I find it interesting in Mark's Gospel, As we read this next series of verses, I'm going to point out what Mark adds to what Matthew gives us here. But in verse 32, again, Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Take note of the fact They followed Him. Now, in Mark's Gospel, he adds, it was Bartimaeus who was referenced in Mark's Gospel, and when Bartimaeus was healed and his eyes were open and he could see all around him, he threw his garment down and followed Jesus. That's significant because that garment that he threw down on the ground was a garment of a beggar. He was begging for help. He got help from the one who could help him the only one who could help him. He was set free. He was delivered. He was healed. He was given hope. And he followed Jesus. Think about this. We don't know how long he was blind. We're not told. Nor the other. But we know that in their blindness, they were totally blind. They were totally dependent on... People who would give them help along the way, perhaps helping them financially, giving them some food, or just encouraging them by praying for them from time to time. That was their life. They had no other alternative. In their blindness, and I'm sure you've noticed that if you have anybody in your acquaintances that are indeed blind, Because they can't see, there's no need for their eyes to move side to side or up or down. Their eyes are always facing forward. The muscles atrophy that control the movement of your eyes if you don't use them. These men's eyes, because they could not see, had muscles that were not functioning attached to their eyes. They had millions of cones and rods in their eyes that were not receptors of light that they needed to be in order for them to send the signal to the brain in order for them to be able to see what was around them. It's not actually the eye that sees, it's the brain that actually interprets what the eye submits to it through the impulses that come from those rods and cones in your eye that focus light into your retina that sends down the optic nerve to the brain and the brain interprets it upside down reverses it so this right side up and you see it's a remarkable miracle that god created this eye I should say these eyes they work in sequence in pairs most of us <laughs> with one exception most of us can see straight ahead with both eyes and focus on what's in front of us or turn to the right or the left and see what our eyes are able to see together, they're in sync. But when they're not in sync, one eye is going in the opposite or wrong direction, it makes it very difficult to focus on things. Some of us have issues with peripheral vision. We're, we're not able to see off on either side because of a disformed eye or perhaps some obstruction in our eye that is causing that. There are issues with eyes that can happen, and it's not normal, but it does. But the normal eye is an amazing creation. It didn't start as a freckle on some salamander. It started as the eye that God created for each human, both male and female, They opened their eyes for the first time. They were able to look around. They were able to deal with the spatial concept that the eye was now for the first time providing for them. They were able to walk about and not bump into anything because they could see things clearly for the first time in a long time or for perhaps ever. And what they did with their new eyesight, as they looked at Jesus. They looked unto Jesus and they followed Him. I wonder how long... Did they follow Him all the way to Jerusalem? Did they follow Him after He... Left Jerusalem and went back to Bethany for a night and then came back the next day? Did they follow him when he entered into the temple? Did they follow him when he walked to the cross? Did they continue to follow his disciples after he was taken down from the cross and placed in the tomb? We're not told anything about Bartimaeus or his companion. But the assumption can, I believe, be made that because Bartimaeus is named by by Mark, that he became a follower not only of Jesus before, but after the resurrection. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. He asked that same question today to anyone whose eyes are not able to see. He wants your eyes open. You need to be willing. It's simply true. You need to ask, and you will receive sight. They did. Jesus had compassion on them. Take note of the fact that also, it says here that Jesus just simply laid His hands on them, and they received the sight instantly. There are other healings of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospel records, and we've gone through several of them. Remember one of them A blind man came to him and he took mud that he had spit into the dirt and created a mud pie that he rubbed into the guy's eyes. And he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man did, and he received his sight. So there's a different activity that Jesus took in order for that particular individual to be healed. Another time... Jesus just simply spit in the guy's eyes. Not a very friendly thing to do, is it? And he asked, are you able to see anything? The man said, I see men as trees. And then Jesus did another act with that individual to finish the work of healing. He does not do anything necessarily in the same way every single time. We can't put God in a box, can we? Some of us try to do that. I submit to you that He generally does not go along with anyone who thinks they've got the right formula. This is how we're to do it. And this is not how we're to do it. We're to do it by faith if we do anything at all and trust the Lord for the outcome. Well, I've diverted. Let's get back to the story. These men now are following Jesus. Where is he going? He's going to Jerusalem. He's climbing the grade, however steep the grade may be, along a road that leads to Jerusalem from Jericho. There's a road that needs to be traversed in the daytime to avoid thieves at night. So he's got a time frame. He's got a limited amount of time that he has to make that journey. But he's got to be on time. There's a schedule, there's a purpose, there's a plan. Verse 1 of chapter 21, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, they then sent Jesus two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately He will send them. I find this to be the most amazing part of Matthew's Gospel. Now, some people don't think that it's miraculous, and it's up to you to decide, I suppose, whether you believe it or not to be miraculous. He could have perhaps made plans earlier on. I submit to you, though, that the way that the story is constructed, that those who had responsibility of keeping those animals tied up at a corner in that little town of Bethphagy could never have known when exactly it was that Jesus was going to arrive. He may have, according to some, spoken in advance sent some kind of a communication to friends in Bethphage that he was aware of, that were supporters of him, to say that I'm going to be at your place at such and such a day. And even if he had said at such and such a time, have the animals ready for my disciples, there'll be two of them, and when they show up, ask them what they're doing, and they're going to give you the code phrase, the Lord has need of them, and then you give them the donkey and the colt and away they will go. He could have done that. Did he know that he was going to be pausing in Jericho to heal two blind men? Did he know exactly how long it would take him to climb the ascent from Jericho to Jerusalem and before he gets to Jerusalem come to that little community of Bethphagee out of the way? It's about three miles south of Bethany and Bethany is on the way to Jerusalem but not Bethphagee. I submit to you that this was a miracle of God. You can think otherwise, but remember, he didn't have the capability of texting somebody. I'm on my way. I'll be there in ten minutes. He didn't have a mail service that could be able to present to that man, whoever he was or whatever he was, be there at such and such a time with the animals that we've spoken of, When did he have time to do that? He was with multitudes all the time. The only time that the Gospels tell us that he was by himself was when he went by himself to pray. So you think about that, and you can think whatever you want to think, but I'm convinced that this is a miraculous foreknowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is taking place because it had to take place. And it was prearranged by the Lord, yes. But I'm not convinced that he... Sent word ahead. This was something that God the Father was also involved with. But in any case, he tells them, this is what you need to do. Go to this city or town. You'll find those animals. Loose them. Tell the owner the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now here's the reason Verse four says, "All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, "Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey." Isaiah 62, Zechariah nine. Prophecies were made in the Old Testament scriptures: The Lord, the Savior the Messiah, is going to come. And he says, tell the daughter of Zion again, behold, your king is coming to you. They expected the king. But it says, lowly and sitting on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. What that is saying is, this king that is coming, is coming in a humble way, not as a king. That you would expect a king, wouldn't you, to come on a white stallion? With his troops behind him, the victorious king coming into the town, proclaiming victory over the Romans. That's not how he came. He didn't come as king. He came as Savior. They expected a king. They rejected the Savior. Verse 6 says, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! What a glorious day! What a wonderful day! Time for the people of God to experience this wonderful thing as the king is finally coming to sit on the throne of David. He's arrived, and they see it because this is indeed a fulfillment of that prophet Zechariah and also Isaiah about whom these things have been said. He fulfilled. Certainly this must be the one. They're quoting from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 of that great psalm. Hosanna. Literally, it means save now. We take it as, in in this present hour, a statement of praise to our God. Hosanna, almost like hallelujah. But it, it was originally save now. That's the original meaning of the Hebrew words that are transliterated to our word, Hosanna. These are the things that they were expecting. They saw this one coming in fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Zechariah, and they knew that this must be a fulfillment of that which was spoken. I submit to you there's another fulfillment that isn't mentioned by Matthew or the other gospel writers, but it's very, very much as true as it is with regard to those prophets that they spoke of. You can go to Daniel's prophecies. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 speaks of the coming king also. But Daniel actually breaks down a very great amount of detail with regard to the people of God, the people of Abraham's descendants, known as the Jews, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Daniel tells us in chapter 9 of that great prophetic book that there are 70 weeks Actually, the original Hebrew is 77s. We translate it weeks because a week is seven days. But it's not a number of weeks that is referred to in this passage that Daniel gives us. It is actually 77s of years, a total of 490 years. And it's interesting that Daniel specifically states that this 490 years has to do with the people of God, the nation Israel. Nobody else is involved. This is a prophetic word about God's chosen people, the Jews. 490 years are given. The angel told Daniel, there will be 483 of those 490 years until the coming of the Messiah. That was foretold by Daniel. The beginning of that 483 or 490 years is the proclamation that is given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, we've got clues in the scriptures that we can go by to determine just exactly the time frame that's involved here. And we know the very beginning date, because we're given that in Nehemiah's writings in the Old Testament scriptures, where Nehemiah, as a cupbearer of the king Artaxerxes, came before the king with a saddened face, and the king recognized there's something going wrong with this man that he loved, And so he asked Nehemiah, what's wrong? And Nehemiah said, my people in Jerusalem are struggling. There's this terrible situation there. I wish I could do something about it. Artaxerxes had compassion on Nehemiah, and this by the Spirit of God. He says, go. How much time do you need? Rebuild the city of Jerusalem. I'll write a command for this very thing. So the command was given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, Biotic Xerxes, given to Nehemiah, and we know the date. It was March 14th in our calendar, 445 B.C. Well, 483 years, 83 years after that, the Messiah would come. Do we know how to calculate that? Well, yes, but you have to convert our 365-day year into the Babylonian 360-day year, because that's the calendar that they had in Nehemiah's day. 483 years of 360 days comes out to 173,880 days. I didn't make that number up. It was a calculated number by Sir Robert Anderson, who wrote about it several decades ago. He was knighted for his work. He wrote a book, The Coming Prince, and all of that information is easily available. So we have the starting date, March 14th, 445 BC. We have the number of days, 173,880 days. Calculate that based on our Roman calendar, the 365 day plus a leap year every four years, and you come up with a date. It happens to be a Sunday, and we believe it was the very Sunday that Jesus rode into. Jerusalem on this donkey. This is remarkable. Now you may think, well, that's a little bit of a stretch. But listen, Luke tells us that when he rode into Jerusalem, before he got into the city, he's looking over the city and he's weeping at what he sees. And he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only known on this your day. Think about it. What day was it that he was referring to? I submit to you that it was the day that Daniel spoke of. The day that the Messiah would come to his people. Exactly on that day, this, your day, that's the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. These are remarkable truths that you can take a look at the Word of God and know your Scriptures so that you can believe that what Jesus has done is indeed all that is needed for each and every one of us, to open our eyes like those who were blind in Jericho. Open my eyes, O Lord. Verse 10 says, And then, when He had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Yes, that's true, but there's more than this. They still did not understand completely, and they won't understand until after the resurrection. Even after the resurrection, two of his disciples walking along the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem after the resurrection had been taking place, or had taken place, and they had heard about the story that he was no longer in the grave from others who had seen themselves, and they're walking along gloomily, very disappointed. And they have a companion who comes alongside them who asks, What's the matter, guys? Why are you so glum? And they answered without really apparently looking up, What well, haven't you heard the things that have happened over the last three days in Jerusalem? How that Jesus, who we thought was the prophet of God, stopped right there. That's all they knew him about about him. They also did not realize that he's more than a prophet. He's the very Lamb of God who was to take away the sins of the world. He is the King of glory that was expected but did not come for that purpose at that time. He is the Savior that was rejected. He is the risen Savior now that will come again as the Lion of Judah. The multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And then Jesus now enters into the temple area. In verse 12 it says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The temple was a place of worship for the Jews. The temple in Jesus' day was rebuilt by Herod. It had originally been built by those in Nehemiah and Ezra's day. It was a much smaller footprint temple than even Solomon's. But Herod had spent a lot of money. And the temple in Jesus' day was still under construction. They had been working on it for some 40 years, and it still had not yet been completed, but it was a glorious place. The temple itself was a very large building from their point of view. It stood some 90 feet high, but it wasn't spacious. It was a temple where the Holy of Holies would stand, and the priests would worship the Lord in this inner court that only the priests could enter. That's where they would offer the sacrifices. And then a little bit beyond that, outside of that original building precinct, the next area was a larger Area known as the court of women. So that the, or rather the court of men. The men could go in there, but not the women. Any Israeli male could go into that court. They could not go into the inner court. Only the priests could enter there. But the priests were able to go into that first court. Then the next court outside, away from the temple, Israelis of all ages, men, could go in, and that's where they would ex- exchange their lamb or give their lamb to the priest for the sacrifice that would be given. They could see the altar from a distance, but they could not enter into that inner court. Outside of that court was a third court called the Court of the Women, and only Israeli women and Israeli men could enter that court. So there was a good deal of teaching going on by the rabbis of the day for all of the people of Israel in that court area. They even had booths set up along the perimeter for that purpose. Then there was another court, a fourth court that was beyond those other three, and that was known as the Court of the Gentiles, a much larger court than any of the others. The whole complex occupied some 15 to 17 acres of land. It was huge. In that outer court, Gentiles could come, but they could not go into the Court of Women. In fact, there were signs all over the wall, separating those two courts with the words Gentiles are not allowed and even the threat of death so the Gentiles had limits they could go in, they could see the temple they could see the smoke rising but they couldn't really participate like the Israelis could but they could come as proselytes, many of them did It was there in that outer court where the priests and scribes, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the leaders would set up tables. And they would be there for probably a good purpose originally. You see, many of the people were coming from great distances. They were coming to offer a lamb. Or if they couldn't afford it, two turtle doves. But they would come into that outer court and they would come to these tables to buy a lamb then that they could sacrifice because that was what they needed to do on that day of sacrifice. That was the Passover requirement for all Jews to sacrifice a lamb for their entire household. And so many of them come from great distances and perhaps some of them did come with their own animal. But many of them came without any lamb or turtle doves to sacrifice. So they needed to buy an animal, in order to proceed with the sacrifice. That was the place where they could do that. The problem with this is that they determined, we can make money out of this. We can make a great deal of profit from this. How about we sell the perfect lands that we've got available for 20 shekels? Well, you can buy a lamb outside for 10 shekels. What are you talking about? 20 shekels? Well, hey, now that you're here, you may as well just give the money and just take care of it. It's it's right here. It's yours. All right. Reluctantly, they would pay the price. It's not only that, but suppose they brought their own lamb. They had to stop at those tables and the this... People thinking they had a perfect lamb for the perfect sacrifice, come proudly to the table, and the priest looks at it and says, oh, no, that's got a blemish. You can't sacrifice that because God requires an unblemished lamb. Remember that? So here, we'll give you a few bucks for this lamb, so it won't be too awfully hard for you, but you're going to buy ours for 25 shekels. Wait a minute, if I didn't have my lamb, I could have bought it for 20. Uh, yeah, but we're taking your lamb so that causes us to have to feed that lamb and take care of that lamb so it's an extra burden on us so we have to charge you more for that. All right. Reluctantly, they paid the price. It's not only that. Some of them came from Gentile territories and all they had in their pockets were Gentile coins. Roman or Greek coins. Well, those were not acceptable in the temple, by the way. You had to have a Jewish shekel. So they had money changers. Oh, you don't have a shekel on you? Well, you've got to go over to the exchange table over there and exchange your Roman coins for the shekels of the temple. Oh, all right. Well, you go over to that place and you've got a silver coin that's worth at least four shekels. You give it to the priest and he gives you two shekels. Wait a minute. That was much more valuable than this. Oh, but you can't. Expect us to exchange it without having some kind of benefit from it, can you? The money's going to go, after all, to the temple? Not exactly. The prophets went to Ananias, or, or rather, Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests of the day. Josephus tells us that they, every time on the Passover, they took in hundreds of thousands of dollars profit. At one point he even says some three million dollars You know, that's a little bit hard to accept. So it wasn't really the setting up of tables and the exchanging of currencies and the selling of animals. It was the way that they were doing it. They were robbing the people. And Jesus saw all of that and he comes into the temple and he turns all the tables and he sends all of those people out of the temple. And his anger is very, very obvious. But isn't it wrong to be angry? Isn't it a sin? No. Righteous indignation? It depends on what we're angry about. It depends on how we respond in our anger. It also depends on how long we stay angry. But it's not a sin to be angry. It's a sin to keep being angry. But Jesus was indeed angry and for a righteous cause. Again, The reason he was so angry at them is simply because they had made God's house of prayer into a den of thieves. And I love what Matthew says next, and we'll close with these last words. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Blind again, coming to the Lord. And they received their sight. Lame, unable perhaps to follow Him. Now they could. Blind and the lame were healed in the temple grounds by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's mercy. That's compassion. That's grace. That's God. Verse 15 continues and says, But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that He did, Not necessarily the words that He spoke, but the things that He did. They saw the healing of the blind. They saw the healing of the lame that He was doing in their midst. And then they heard the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Again, the voices of the people rejoicing in the fact that the King had come, the one that they had expected, was arrived on the scene. They were indignant. They were angry. They were offended. They wanted to kill him even more than ever before. But you know what? This is exactly as it needed to be. Every detail of it, all of the timing of it, All of the things that are developing throughout these days that he's in and out of Jerusalem until he's crucified on a Roman cross, they would have to fall into place at precisely the right moment of time and on the precise day upon which they were intended. So Jesus answers their indignation with these words. He said to them, Do you, or they said rather, Do you hear what these are saying? They were thinking, Surely he wouldn't accept this kind of praise from children. And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? I love that. I just so love that. Jesus has already said this several times. We've looked at it in more than one place. Remember in our study in the book of Matthew? Matthew loves to remind the people who are reading this gospel that Jesus recognized something about the Pharisees. They were indeed scholars. They were indeed students of the Word of God. They knew God's Word well. Or did they? And so Jesus, on more than one occasion, and again here in the temple, says, Have you not read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Psalm 8, verse 2. Praise coming from little ones. In Luke's Gospel... In the same account, Luke says that Jesus' response is if the people do not lift their voices in praise, the very rocks would sing out. You can't stop it, people. You can't stop it. The Lamb of God is about to be slain. And though they rejected the Savior, He was Savior still. Though they expected a king, He had not come yet for that purpose, but He will. So, Where do we stand? Are we expecting the King? Yes, and He will come. And I look forward to that day when He will break through the clouds and call us home to be with Himself and we will see the King. Oh yes, we will see the King. They rejected the Savior. When we move forward from this study today and look into what else Matthew says about those ensuing days before the crucifixion, we see the inspection of the Lamb. But at the end of the Gospel, we will see also the risen Savior, the King of glory, Lion of Judah. Finally, in verse seventeen he says, Then he left them. That's all he needed to say. That's all they needed to hear. It is up to them to make their own conclusions. He left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there, probably at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, whom he had raised from the dead. People. How many physically blind individuals have you ever run across in your life? Think about it. There are only a handful. But how many spiritually blind do you know? More than just a few. My prayer for them is that each one of us would help them to see that they would want as Bartimaeus wanted. And my eyes would be open. Lord, open their eyes. Lord, open their ears. Lord, soften their hearts. And God Almighty, use us in these last days to accomplish these things by Your Spirit to point them to Christ. And I pray that, Lord God, they will see the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world and that they would not reject You as our Savior any longer, but receive You as King and expect Your return once again to reign In the name of Jesus, Lord God, we pray these things. Amen.